This is from the Buddha. It was actually on the very first brochure that we ever sent out uh, when we opened our center in Massachusetts. He said, the thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed, the deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. I've always liked this uh, stanza because of that phrase, let it spring from love, born out of concern from all beings. The Buddha didn't seem to say, make it spring from love and force it to spring from love and somehow manage to have it spring from love, but rather let it. So as to imply, in fact, this capacity that we seem to have innately that we need to uncover, not contrive, but uncover. So let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. The Buddha also said, just as the dawn is the forerunner and the first indication of the rising sun, so is right view the forerunner and the first indication of wholesome states. It means our view of things, our vision of ourselves and what we are capable of, our vision of our place in this world, molds our intentions. It molds the field of motivations out of which we act. And motivations then give rise to and mold our actions. Lately when I think of metta practice, I think of it largely in these terms. I think of it in terms of how we use our attention. Because how we use our attention, how we are aware, actually molds our vision. I think we can very much see metta practice then as <clears throat> opening and clarifying our vision of life, our sense of belonging in the fabric of life, rather than seeing it as the manufacturing of a certain feeling state. In uh, Tibetan schools of Buddhism, they sometimes use this image. They talk about people who are looking at the sky through a straw and exclaiming, wow, it's really big up there. It's really open and vast and immense and spacious. And then somehow, through courage or faith or having a good friend, somehow one puts down that straw. And then we look, nakedly, without that little tunnel vision. And then we see, wow, really is big up there, really is open. Many times in our lives we are looking at the sky through a straw of our fears, our belief systems, our ideas about ourselves, our preconceptions of what should happen, what should not happen, our desires. Through the act of meditation we are emboldened to put down the straw. And then we look, and then we see really is quite vast. Once I went to my friend John Kabat-Zinn's um, class in stress reduction in Worcester, which is not too far from Barry, he did this kind of exercise which is a little bit hard to describe verbally, but he, he took a blackboard in front of the class and just in the center of the blackboard, in a very small area, he drew three rows of three dots each. So just right in that little incy part in the middle 
of the blackboard, there were nine dots. Then he said, I want someone to come up here and take the piece of chalk, connect all of the dots, only drawing a straight line without withdrawing the chalk from the blackboard. So one by one, every single one of us, like 30 or 35 people in the class, went up to the blackboard and went absolutely crazy because we could not do it. Finally, at the end of all this, John went up and he made these very large sweeping gestures encompassing the whole area of the blackboard and he managed to do just what he challenged us to do connect all the dots only using straight lines and not taking the chalk away from the blackboard. Now, for some reason, every single one of us, 30 or 35 minds there in the room, had made the assumption that the arena we had to work with was bounded by that little area in the middle created by the dots. He never said, you can't go outside that. He never implied it, not once. But every single one of us was immensely frustrated by what was in fact a self-limitation. Many times in life we are like that. We are driven by our conditioning in some way and our assumptions about things and would be so much freer if we could just open, let go, be willing to see things in a different way. How we use our attention molds our vision of what's possible for us, what we can accomplish, who we are, what life is about. So we learn through meditation practice to relax some, to not hold on to that straw ever so tightly because it's what we know, it's what's familiar. We learn how to challenge some of those self-limiting assumptions that bind us and limit us and have us feel we are capable of so little. How we use our attention is critical and it's something that we can do. It's very, very possible for us. In metta practice, we see this in several different ways. Even just the suggestion, well, look at the good within you, or look for the good in someone else is a conscious use of our attention. And it's fine. Somehow, it is so much easier for us to absolutely obsess about the mistakes we've made and the, the things we regret than it is to spend one half a second just actually consciously placing our attention on something good about us. And again, we do that not for the purpose of fostering conceit, but actually for the sake of delight, of gladdening the mind, as it's called in the texts, of opening, of feeling a quality of self-respect that isn't so personal. It's more recognizing that this this potential for goodness, for kindness, for connection is within all of us, and it's within us. We place our attention on the reflection that all beings want to be happy. And somehow we feel joined in a bigger picture. In some ways we can see metta itself more than a feeling or a sentiment as a fullness or completeness of attention. Once a friend of mine went to see um, this very esteemed 
monk, uh, the late Karmapa, the Karmapa was a title, he was living in Sikkim at the time, we were living in India. And to get to Sikkim was something of an ordeal. You had to rent a jeep and ford rivers and climb mountain passes and all these things. But my friend got there and he said that the Karmapa related to him as though his appearance was just about the most important thing that had ever happened to the Karmapa in his whole life, which it wasn't. <laughs> and he said that the Karmapa did that not through great pomp and circumstance and some grandiose gesture. He did it by an absolute complete fullness of attention. And so my friend said that the subjective experience of that was one of being completely loved. No grand flourishes, nothing fancy, but just that wholeness of attention. It's like actually being seen, actually being listened to. Once when I was teaching the three-month retreat in Barry. I had a dream that I was teaching the three-month retreat in Barry, which wasn't the exciting part of the dream. <laughs> um, but in my dream, I was doing an interview with somebody, and they said to me, why do we love people? And I responded in the dream by saying, because they recognize us. They see who we are, they recognize something about us. In some way, this is what we all want. And it's not that hard a gift to give. When my friend told me the story about visiting the Karmapa, I immediately thought about just how many conversations I have where I'm kind of there and kind of thinking about the next thing I need to do, or the phone call I need to make, or what I forgot that morning. It wouldn't take that much to just arrive, to be more fully present. And it is like a gift of love, it's a gift of metta. So metta has to do with that completeness, that wholeness of our attention, that's concentration. It's bringing our energy into the moment. It's being here. It has to do with the aiming of the mind toward inclusion, toward connection, rather than overlooking somebody or looking through somebody or ignoring somebody or you know, having the feeling, well, that one doesn't count. Only that one counts. And the perfect arena for that learning is tomorrow's um, instruction, which is the neutral person. Sending metta to a neutral person, someone we don't strongly like or dislike. And actually, that's the f part of this practice that is my favorite. Because here is like a generic living being. You know, they haven't done us some enormous favor so that we are indebted to them and therefore have to recognize them or send them some love, some loving energy. And we don't know maybe the particulars of their life at all. So it's not that our hearts are moved in compassion because we know their pain or, or their suffering. We might not know anything about them. And so, of course, the tendency, the habitual tendency the particular straw through which we tend to see them is not at all. Sometimes when we introduce the neutral person as an object of metta, people start thinking, well, who is neutral in my life? And they realize that there's almost nobody. Because as soon as they meet somebody or they even hear about them, they have a judgment. You know, I like them, I don't like them. Sometimes people discover they have an enormous number of neutral people in their lives, that we walk by or move by living, breathing beings who want to be happy, just like us. And for all we recognize that, they might as well be pieces of furniture. They've really become objects to us, as opposed to 
living beings. And yet, what we discover over time, not in the first sitting, very likely, but over time that by bringing this person to our field of awareness, by including them rather than overlooking them or ignoring them, simply by paying attention to them, what develops naturally is a tremendous sense of care and connection. Once I was teaching Metta in Barry one uh, February, and a friend of mine sat that retreat. I didn't see her again until that summer, in August, when I was teaching in New Mexico, and she also came to do that retreat. She came up to me in the beginning of the retreat in New Mexico, and she was all kind of beaming, and she said to me, I've fallen in love with my dry cleaner. And I said, oh really? <laughs> That's very nice. <laughs> and she said, no, no, not romantically, but he was my neutral person in that retreat I did back in Barry. And I just brought him into my heart, and I held him in my heart, and I cherished him, I wished him well. And she said, now I go into the store. <laughs> and it's like, it's like seeing your secret friend, your secret love. And she said, she still didn't know his story. She didn't know the particulars of his life. I don't even know if she knew his name. But she said, I really, I can't wait to get into the store, and I just really care about him. And it's true. This is actually what happens. And what's so amazing to me is that it happens simply because we become more aware of somebody. If we pay attention in the right way, our view or our vision will be inclusive. We won't cut off or cut away any of life. Once I was teaching, um, not too long ago in New York, I was teaching a non-residential, this day-long retreat of uh, metta down in Soho. and. We all went out to do walking meditation on the streets of New York. And I was, I was doing it as well, so I was, I was walking along, and I kind of looked up and I recognized somebody who was in the class. So we sort of we made a certain acknowledgement to each other, like, here we are, bound in love in the streets of New York, you know, and then looked the other way and kept on walking. And then I past somebody else who was in the class, and we also, you know, kind of half smiled at each other and then went on. And then I saw somebody and I thought, they kind of look familiar. I wonder if they're in the class too. And I wasn't sure, you know, so I wasn't quite sure um, to whether to include them or not in this, in this field of special feeling. And I walked on and then, of course, I realized, why do that? You know, why was there suddenly a new class of beings, you know, those who were taking the day-long retreat and those who were not? What an amazing thing it is just to imagine even opening and opening and opening with that sense of inclusivity. The courage of metta comes from the inclusivity, that we are not spending our energy and we're not using our life force in drawing those kinds of distinctions and holding off and warding off and guarding. Which doesn't mean being foolish. It doesn't mean being stupid. I don't think it's very wise, you know, to go up to somebody in the streets of New York and just, you know, look at them and throw your arms around them and say, may you be happy. <laughs> But it is a tremendous recognition of the relief of not being so afraid all the time. And in fact, it's said that the Buddha taught loving-kindness as the antidote to fear. As legend would have it, he sent a group of monks off into this forest to meditate, and the forest happened to be inhabited by tree spirits. 
the tree spirits didn't like the presence of the monks. They found them kind of annoying, so they tried to frighten them and drive them away. They appeared as these ghoulish apparitions and they made these horrible shrieking sounds. And In fact, the monks became terrified and they ran away. They ran back to the Buddha and they said to him, um, Oh Lord Buddha, this is what happened. Please send us to a different forest. And the Buddha said, well, I'm going to send you back to the very same forest, but I'm going to give you the only protection you will ever need. And that was the first teaching of loving-kindness. The protection is not in being closed off, but actually in recognizing the power and the naturalness of our connection, all of us to one another. And as these stories all end so happily, it's said that the monks went back to that very same forest and they practiced loving-kindness so that the tree spirits were totally delighted to have all that loving energy in their forest and they decided to feed the monks and take care of them and so on. But regardless of one's affinity with that particular legend, it's taught that metta is the antidote to fear because it is a certain way of using our attention that changes our basic mode from one of trying to control what cannot be controlled to being willing to open and connect with what actually is. When we see clearly what we see is this vast web of interconnectedness that is the truth of things. When we stop and we look at that dry cleaner and we actually pay attention and we recognize, yeah, they want to be happy just like we do. There is something very fundamental that shifts in our feeling of separation. I think if we really saw clearly at any time, we would see just an immensity of relatedness so that we would understand that in joy or in sorrow, we are never alone, never. And that our lives are very much intertwined whether we like someone or not, whether we approve of them or not, whether we're going to try to stop what they're doing or not. In fact, we are not so separate. It's said that there was a monk in the Buddha's time who became a monk from, first in his life he was from a very wealthy aristocratic family, so that when he did become a monk, the other monks used to like to tease him. They used to say things like, Oh brother, where does milk come from? And he would say, It comes from a silver bowl. And they'd say, Where does rice come from? And he would say, It comes from a golden bowl. Because he believed that. I always use this example in Manhattan when I'm teaching, which is where I'm from. Because we can believe that. We can actually think, you know, that it comes from Safeway or, you know, that it comes wrapped in those little packages. But everything is a long chain of conditions that need to come together for whatever it is to arise. That is the truth of life that we are not standing apart from all of those conditions which need to happen. One of my other favorite fantasies, sitting in front of a room full of people, such as yourself, is to think, okay, how many of us are actually sitting here? If we add in all the people any one of us has thought about today. So that's getting more crowded. And we add in 
all of the people, for any one of us, and then all of us, who were in some way influential in bringing us to this moment in time. All of the people who inspired us in some way, gave us a book, told us about an experience they had, so that we ourselves thought of looking more deeply into life. And what if we added as well all the people who have hurt us in some way, or challenged us in some way, or even broken our hearts, in some way forced us to look more deeply into life? It's more crowded still. Bring all them here. And all the people who made our clothes and grew that food that ended up where we bought it. All the people who created this place and sustained this place. Add them here too. It's a lot of beings here. Once somebody asked me how it was that after uh, many years of being quite deeply immersed in practice in a Burmese tradition, I came to spend more time practicing and studying in a certain Tibetan school. So in response to the question, I thought back and I thought, well, 1971, somebody gave me a picture of this Tibetan Lama and I went to study a little bit with him. So that was an influence. That was one of the conditions. And in 1989, somebody invited me to India and I was at a conference with the Dalai Lama and there were certain exchanges that happened there that were also part of the condition. But then I realized that the most powerful force that had brought about that in my life was the fact that Joseph and I had gone to Russia one year to teach and we arrived in Russia on the eve of the coup attempt against Gorbachev. So our course got canceled and we had to leave and this brought me to Paris at a time when I never expected to be in Paris and that's where I met my teacher. So sometimes you know, like when I was asked that question, and I think about it, I think, well, could Gorbachev be part of the sort of karmic stream of events that brought me to study in this Tibetan school after so many years in a Burmese school? And I thought, well, you know, maybe. Maybe so. I really do believe that if we get quiet enough if we use our attention in the right way, this is what we will see. That we are a part of a whole with tremendous connectedness and relatedness, that we're never alone, that nothing and no one stands apart. That is actually loving-kindness. That is how we aim the mind. That is how we foster and nurture the power of intention. It's toward that realization, that recognition. That is right view. And this is why in talking about metta we say it is so much more than an emotion, than a sentiment, than a feeling. Why limit yourself? to such a small definition of the loving heart. Fundamentally, it is that knowing that we are, we are connected, we are joined. Once when I was teaching a retreat, a loving kindness retreat in Europe, I had another experience of this when a woman came up to me who was doing the retreat and she said to me, you know, I had a really, really hard year. I had a, a year of great difficulty. And then she said, the one thought that 
kept me going through the year was the thought that somewhere in the world someone was doing loving kindness for all beings everywhere and that I'm a being. And that therefore somewhere in the world there was someone who was in effect holding me in their heart, including me in their care, paying attention to me, even not knowing me. And I thought, isn't that true, actually? That there are beings in this world who, through the force of their own dedication or their devotion, their own commitment, are offering metta to all beings everywhere. And each one of us, we're beings. We could understand that we could receive that at any time. And we could understand we can participate actively in that at any time. Often, we, of course, do not perceive this, and we feel tremendously alone and isolated. And it's important to understand that all of those forces of habit which produce those feelings will come up very strongly in our practice. This is almost like the nature of the journey. Each of those qualities that I talked about the other night of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity is said to have what is called a near and a far enemy. Kamala referred to some of these the other night. The far enemy is the opposite state it becomes very clear to us that this is not that. Whereas the near enemy is something that is quite close, but not really there. It's close enough so that we can easily be confused, so that whatever the near enemy is can masquerade as the the state itself, unless we pay very careful attention. And I believe, from my own experience and from teaching loving-kindness so much, I believe that a good deal of our journey toward a state such as metta, or an understanding of metta, or a trust in metta, a good deal of that journey is through the near and far enemies. The far enemy of metta is aversion or anger. And the near enemy is attachment or desire. So if you find that a good deal of your meditation practice is moving through the terrain of attachment and aversion, I think that's right. I think that's what happens. The important thing is to understand how to see these states for what they are, in effect to let go of them, which means not to fixate on them. Fixation is that narrowing of view that holds, that confines, that limits, that decides this is who I really am. The 15 other hours of being filled with compassion don't count. This is who I really am. Fixation is the movement to grasp, to identify with what is happening in the moment. It's like in John Kabat-Zinn's class, instead of seeing that whole blackboard, saying, okay, this tiny little area in the middle, that's where I have to work. Fixation is getting an intimation that maybe we're looking at the sky through a straw 
but we're used to it, so we hold on even tighter. The meditation practice is learning how not to annihilate states like attachment and aversion, but it's learning how not to fixate on them as though that were all that we were, as though that defined all possibility for us. It seems true that we cannot control what arises in the mind in terms of feeling. I mean, who amongst us has not said with great determination and a lot of vigor and certainty, okay, I will never fall asleep in sitting again, right? And guess what? When conditions arise for something to arise in the mind, when conditions come together for something to arise in the mind, it's going to come. That doesn't mean we can't affect the conditions, because we do. I mean, here we are practicing. But to think that we can absolutely determine what will happen as though we were in control is a very sorry state of affairs. Once one of my early teachers, Manindra, said to me, I went to him in some distress saying something about what was going on in my mind and I had a lot of shame about it and blame and distress and he looked at me and he said, why are you so upset about that thought that came up in your mind? Did you invite it? You know, did you say at you know, 8.06 I'd like to be filled with self-judgment? No. But as conditions come together, different things arise. And the magic of practice is that we learn how to relate to them with awareness, with compassion, with inclusivity, rather than with fixation. We tend to see a lot of attachment in the mind, which is the near enemy of metta. We see wanting, we see longing, we see grasping, we see desire, sometimes quite a lot of it. When something lovely happens in practice, we feel really good, we have an opening, we we find a level of caring that's new. Very often, the next thing that happens is a fixation. I can remember in my early practice, not my earliest practice, which was all suffering, um, but my early, my later early practice, which uh, felt better, (laughs) um, you know, where I would sit and I would have these lovely serene feelings going through my body like I was floating in air and I would just feel so wonderful and so great and so buoyant and Right away, I would start thinking, isn't it going to be wonderful living the entire rest of my life just like this? And, you know, there I was in India with no intention of ever coming back to the United States, but I'd picture myself in, you know, 10 years maybe floating down the streets of New York in exactly that same mind state. And of course, what happened? You know, 15 minutes went by or 20 minutes went by, and my back started hurting, my knees started hurting, and I got bored and I got restless. And every single time I thought, what did I do wrong that made it go away? I must have slumped a little bit, or breathed too hard, or done this or done that. But the truth of things, of course, is that everything goes away. All things that are born out of conditions will arise, and when those conditions change, it will pass away. It's not our fault. That's actually the truth of things. Everything changes. We live in this world of constant movement and flux and change and transition. That's how things are. Attachment is trying to say, in a way, that just isn't so that if I only hold on tightly enough, 
it will all be okay. But really, when you think about it, when have we ever succeeded in holding on tightly enough so that something wouldn't change, a person wouldn't change, life would go exactly the way we wanted it to? Not yet, anyway. And we've had a lot of practice trying. It's not that attachment is bad or wrong, but you can see how it's, it's a lot of suffering, it's a lot of limitation, and it necessarily brings about a certain level of fear, because we're trying to keep life from being what it is. And that takes a lot of energy and brings a lot of fear. As we feel things slip away and move and change. Sometimes I tell the story about um, this housewarming present that I got when we first moved into our house. And um, it was a very inexpensive thing that I liked a lot. It was a glass tea kettle that you put on the stove and heat up water in to make tea. And even though it was just this simple, inexpensive thing, I really, really liked it. In fact, I was very attached to it. I even told people, you know, that's one of my favorite objects, that's one of the favorite things of mine that I own. And then one day, when I, I live next door to the center, to IMS, and I was just making a cup of tea, getting ready to go next door and listen to someone else, the Dharma talk, I lifted the tea kettle off of the stove and it broke. And the hot water went all over my hands and I got burnt and, um, and I had to go next door to listen to somebody give a Dharma talk. So I was sitting there listening and the whole time I was thinking, how could that tea kettle have done that to me? <laughs> you know, it was my favorite thing. I even told people it was my favorite thing. How could it have broken, you know? And I realized that I actually felt betrayed by my tea kettle. I did. <laughs> and this is how we are. It's like we lean into experience and then we feel betrayed because it is what it is. Life is what it is. If we can lean back a little bit rather than lean forward and try to hold and try to cling, we can relax and we can connect. When we connect, there's love. Automatically. Just like with the neutral person. And so a great deal of what we do is learning how to just settle back and see things as they are. Sometimes we get very attached to a model of perfection. We have to do this right and we have to be a perfect, immaculate, completely loving being. But really, genuinely, the practice is not about manufacturing some kind of persona and then somehow trying to squeeze ourselves into that, that created image. It's about using our awareness in a certain way. It's about being able to begin again. It's about not being able to fixate and cling and hold on. I once had a great example of this one some years ago. Uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was giving teachings on patience in Tucson, Arizona. The way the format of the event was set up was that he would speak, he would give teachings in the morning and the afternoon, and then they invited different Western Dharma teachers to speak each evening. The first evening it was Sylvia and myself who were giving the presentation. And there were a few thousand people in the audience, which at that point was the largest group 
I had ever spoken in front of. So I was somewhat apprehensive, and I kept thinking, well, you know, I really want to do this right, and um, I want to do it well. And finally it was over, you know, and it was a little nerve-wracking. We're speaking in front of his throne. He wasn't on it, but it was right back there. Um, you know, and finally it was over, which was great. And then, in a few days, there was this very funny incident where, as His Holiness was teaching, the way he would do it would be he would read the text in Tibetan that he was using to talk about patience from. And then as his translator was translating what he had just read, he would flip on ahead to look at the next passage which he was about to read. And so he was doing that, and then he heard something the translator say which he didn't really agree with, and he looked up. And he said, no, that's not what I said. And the translator said, yes, it is. <laughs> and they got into this whole tangle with each other. And it was, it was over some very minor point, like whether the text said something like, he said that to her, or she said that to him. or you know, It wasn't like a major substantive issue, but they got into this whole tangle about it. And saying, no, you're wrong, no, I'm wrong. And back and forth. And then um, finally the Dalai Lama flipped back in the pages of the text to the passage in dispute and all of a sudden he burst out in this big hysterical laugh and he said, oh, ha 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 ha, I made a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, that's interesting. You know, first of all, if two nights before then I had made a mistake, would I have told everyone (laughs) I made a mistake? Would I have laughed about it? Maybe not. But it was such a beautiful example of a free heart that wasn't um, bound and determined to appear so as to never make a mistake. We see a lot of attachment in all kinds of different ways in the practice, and we need to see it. Seeing it is not the problem. Fixating on it is more of a problem. So seeing it and learning to let it go. Learning not to confine ourselves to that identity. Having a spirit of loving kindness anyway is very freeing. And we see a lot of aversion in the practice, which is the far enemy. As Kamala mentioned, aversion has two main manifestations. One is of strong and outflowing, outgoing, which is anger. And then the more frozen, imploding side is fear. It seems so ironic to be sitting and so nicely saying, you know, may you be happy now. And to see just the, the irritation and the impatience and the annoyance and the, you know, the negative feeling that just keeps coming. But again, it's a question of seeing things as clearly as possible and not to get lost in tunnel vision as a consequence of it. Once I was sitting in India with a teacher, and I had this experience where I felt strongly this sense of interconnection or joining with other beings. So when I went up and told the teacher about that experience, he said to me, well, now you'll never feel fear again. And I thought, you're yeah, right, <laughs> now I'll never feel fear again. And sure enough, I left the room and I was out on the streets of India and there was some kind of chaos going on, oh, many kinds of chaos going on, and within five minutes I was filled with fear. But I also realized that because I had so recently had that other experience of 
sensing the interconnection, then I wasn't relating to the fear as I so normally would, which would be to seize upon it and say, I am such a fearful person, and I always will be. Or, this is all that I am. Or any of those various mental habits that, that almost define that squeezing in, that fixation, that identification with the state. I had fear, yet it was more in the context of that feeling of connection. So I thought about what the teacher said, and I thought, you know, he wasn't really right, but maybe he wasn't totally wrong. As the Buddha put it, and this is just a paraphrase, imagine taking a teaspoonful of salt and putting it in a glass full of water. Because the glass is just a small vessel, the water is going to be very strongly impacted by that teaspoonful of salt. Now imagine taking that same teaspoonful of salt or even a truckload full of salt and putting it in a pond of fresh water because of the bigness, the openness of what is receiving that salt. It's not going to be so strongly impacted. It's not going to be overcome. And the Buddha said, the salt in our lives is like the irritants, it's the pain. It's the things we really don't like, we don't want, whether internal or external. And the truth of things is that we can't control that. No matter how much we protest and say, no more salt, I had lots, you know, look at that person over there, you know, they haven't had any in a long time. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Yet we fixate on the very aspect of life we can't control. Whereas, if the body of water receiving the salt was a whole lot bigger than a small glass, even with that experience, there could be freedom, there could be love, there could be openness. And that is something we can do something about. We can definitely transform the mind and the heart so that it is a bigger vessel, it's more open. So that very same amount of salt can be experienced differently. The Buddha said, I think, quite beautifully, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, which cannot be painted, it cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. It's like if somebody were standing in the middle of this room just throwing paint around in the air, there's don't get worried, <laughs> these spirit rock people. <laughs> There's nowhere in the space for the paint to land. It doesn't matter if the color of the paint is extremely well chosen or was really a terrible mistake. The space is not going to be ruined, it's not going to be tainted. It's not going to be marred by that color of paint. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, which cannot be painted, it cannot be marred, it cannot be ruined. Once I was, I was teaching in uh, New York, um, and a very young girl, I don't know, she was like, maybe eight or nine years old, came with, and seemed to be her mother, to hear the talk. And um, looking at the, actually looking at the dynamic between the two of them, 
it was a little hard to tell if the girl had brought her mother or the mother had brought the girl, but I use that example, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. And just after that, the, the girl left the room. Then she came back in and it was time for questions. And so she raised her hand and she said, why is love like space? So I thought, well, <laughs> in that, and I replied, in that sense of immensity and vastness and openness and the fact that it can't be destroyed. So she looked at me and she said, you think love can't be destroyed? And I said, yeah. And she said, I think you're right. <laughs> said, That's good. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, within which we will experience attachment and fear and anger, withholding. We will experience a tremendous amount of arisings internally, and certainly the whole progression, the whole nature of life externally. But nonetheless, we can be free in the face of all that, and that's loving-kindness. To have a fullness of attention and a comprehension of connection, no matter what is happening. Rilke said something very beautiful. This is also just a paraphrase. He said something like, do not be frightened if a sadness larger than you have ever known rises up within you. Life has not forgotten you. Which is the healing. Really, that life has not forgotten us. We are all joined together in our joy and in our sorrow. I'll close with reading this poem, which uh, somebody sent me a fragment of once. um, Proved to be just a fragment when I actually got the book. The poet, again, is Naomi Shihab Nye, and the book is Words Under the Words. The poem is called Kindness. She says, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. She's writing this in Colombia. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow is the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So let's sit together for a few moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.